This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a great day. Well, uh, I got admonished uh, when I did open line yesterday. I was talking about the miserable weather because apparently it was beautiful in Corner Brook. Oh. <laughs> but we've got a bit of sunshine today, Claudette. We do. And I, you know, you hear people muttering around, just butter, sputtering around, and you hear people commenting on the weather. They're just happy to be able to see a little bit of blue sky. A little bit of sunshine is all it takes. We don't ask for much. <laughs> no, not at all. We don't ask for much. I bet you the, the shorts are already out. You know, it does not take much for us to be in some sort of summer attire in Newfoundland. Any excuse. My husband is one of those. He'll wear shorts in the winter with snow. God love him. <laughs> well, a bit of sad news uh, today. I woke up to hear the news that uh, Gordon Lightfoot had passed away at the age of 84. And um, his contribution to music, not only here in Canada, but internationally, uh, is just extraordinary. A songwriter that, you know, is seldom equaled. Uh, just some extraordinary stuff. And if you grew up in the 1970s, like I did, there we go, dating myself, <laughs> uh, his music was ubiquitous it was on the radio all the time and when you think of things like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald what is it seven minutes plus it's a very very long tune yeah and the subject matter which was of course a disaster that had only occurred within a year or so before the song came out uh, and written in that traditional kind of storytelling balladeer kind of way when you consider uh, that radio stations were playing that almost every single day for years. And that's considered very, very long in song standards. I mean, the average song is three, three and a half minutes. So the fact that we were still playing that and still continuing to do that yeah. must be some song. It is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and of course, you just uh, just before heading in here, that iconic guitar riff mm. of um, Sundown, which of course has that kind of a upbeat sound, but the lyrics are a bit dark. They are, yeah, and it was, as, as we just heard, it was, uh, you know, his uh, girlfriend, I think, or his love at the time going out, and he just didn't want anybody else to be around her, and then wrote that song. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, she had a whole story, too, <laughs> yeah. uh, as we now know. But, uh, yeah, very sad, and of course, I was working the, the, the first the night um, when uh, Gordon Lightfoot first died. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, the, uh, that was going around on social media. Well, it, I think it was a little bit before social media at the time. Maybe it was 15 years ago, and maybe Brian Callahan, who's because on the line. Because there was, like, fake news around it. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. what had happened was he had suffered this terrible um, aneurysm mm -hmm. uh, in his stomach, I think it was, and he was near death at the time. It was a very, very serious thing, but somebody jumped the gun, and I remember on the news wires it came down that Gordon Lightfoot had died, and there was something about the lack of detail, I think. Your spidey senses went the up. In the story that yep. I said, you know what, I was working that night, and I said, you know what? I'm not putting this in this in my overnight casts. I'm going to let the story evolve and see what happens. Anyway, my instincts were right Good on that you. one. He was very much alive, and he was very quick <laughs> to come out and say, uh... The news of my death yeah. is a bit premature. How eerie. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, he's, he lived another uh, 10, 15 years and still touring and still uh, performing. He never gained the weight back after that uh, no, I terrible that. weight um, um, 
He had a lot of health issues. Setback, but uh, mm -hmm. he was still touring, and I think he, he played Newfoundland and Labrador not too long after that, so... Anyway, very sad news today uh, on the Canadian music front. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit today about the crab fishery because it's continuing do to dominate discussion. Um, but the news uh, in the courts and in uh, justice here in Newfoundland and Labrador is that the chief medical examiner's office has ruled that a suspicious death in the capital city's downtown on the weekend was a homicide. And it's just some of the news that we're following for you today. The number of homicides in the province this year has risen to four after the chief medical examiner's office ruled the death of a 25-year-old man in the capital city's downtown uh, a homicide. Um, the young man was found injured and lying on the ground in the area of Sebastian Court after police were called to the scene around 1.30 Sunday morning. Sebastian Court, of course, an area near St. John's City Hall. It includes a number of city housing units arranged in a, in a big square with a courtyard in the center, and that's where police have set up a forensic tent collecting evidence from the scene. Well, Brian Callahan was down in the area, and he joins me now. Hi, Brian. Hello, Brian. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you now. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm fine. Thanks very much. That's good. Uh, I was wondering if you uh, remember when Gordon Lightfoot uh, died the first time. Oh, oh my gosh, I do. I was, um, what was I, where was I then? I think it was at CBC and I remember it was a Can West Global store. I think it was, it was in the winter and I think it was February, maybe 29, 2009, 2010, something like that. And uh, we were all off the chairs with that, but we quickly realized, and, and boy, I tell you, I know, remember one thing, thinking, let's not all be too harsh. I mean, it was a horrible mistake, but who in the business hasn't oh, jumped yeah. the gun on a story, you know, and had huge, so I was like, <laughs> there but for the grace of God go all of us, right? Yeah, for sure. And I remember when it came down, the news came down, it was kind of scant. And I remember oh, yeah. something in my gut said, I'm going to wait and see what yeah. happens here. And yeah. anyway, thankfully... Uh, we didn't air it that yeah. night. <laughs> the beauty of the of even like newspaper at the time, or you know, if you weren't doing regular newscasts or you weren't online, at least you didn't post it right away. You would have had to have to wait, you know, until yeah. the paper came out or the newscast. So you know, you'd be saved that way. Yeah, social media these days it would yeah. be instantaneous and everywhere before anything yeah. you know, could be verified. Yep. Well, yep. Um, as you know, I was just speaking about uh, the, the, the sudden death, the suspicious death, now ruled a homicide in Sebastian Court yeah. on the weekend. And I understand you were down in that area. Uh, I know the weekend when uh, Noah Shepard went down, it was completely cordoned off with police tape. But what's it like down there now? It's pretty open, actually. If uh, just for people who may not be familiar, um, and probably not. I mean, this is a kind of a, as you pointed, like it's a densely populated apartment complex with its own little courtyard, kind of a little commune thing, uh, a lot of shared things like a little um, uh, swing sets and stuff there. And so, you know, you you can enter through a couple of little portals, like stairwells, and you kind of feel like you're inside an amphitheater kind of thing. And all you look around. 360 and it's all windows looking back at you right so it's very secluded that way and there's a lot of little secluded alleyways and corners and angles that would make it hard for an investigation like this only because you know you keep you would be out of sight of cameras it's really awkward little 
and, and in the very back, there's a very narrow, steep uh, area that unless you're looking, you might not even know it's there, but it's, it's a walkway that goes behind the whole complex. And that's where one of the tents, uh, forensic tents, is sent, set up. And there's another one right in the middle courtyard, which looks more like an area where they actually go and take any evidence and then sit it down and have a closer look at it. But I, I don't know that. All I know is today it was pretty easy to get around. There were a few officers there keeping, you know, milling about, but not really restricting you because you, it's hard to restrict anyone because it's such, you know, a little place to go if you live there. And so there was one woman there, you know, uh, with a young son, two or three years old, and you could see the kind of like, you know, uneasy sort of, yeah, okay, I'm just going out with my life here despite the police and the forensic tents with my two-year-old son next, you know, that kind of awkwardness. So we had a short chat. She didn't really want to go on record, but, you know, she's um, she spoke for a lot of people. They're, you know, they're unnerved by it. Uh, it's close to downtown. You know, there's a lot of traffic that comes through there. I used, I know when I lived down in that area, I still live downtown, but different place. And I cut through there all the time after downtown for a night to walk up through, you know, and get up to Military Road. So it's a travels area like that. And this was like a late Saturday or, well, early Sunday morning thing. So, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's downtown. It's Water Street, George Street, Duckworth Street. A lot of traffic coming back and forth. The interesting thing here is, you know, it's been a few days and there's really not a lot of talk, either in the courts or, you know, the usual haunts where I might, you know, hear somebody might hear something, whether it's just, you know, casually from law enforcement, somebody might know someone, not a leak as such, but, you know, you can get an idea which way these cases are going. And it's so far just, you know, from the various people I've chatted with down around the courts and in the neighborhood, the common denominator here is that somehow they kind of knew each other. That's believed. And we know that the police have already said it was not random. So that would kind of line up and maybe have been up to some kind of no good, although I don't want to presuppose. But one of the tents is set up right in that very narrow, dark alleyway. Whereas, again, you know, if, if some two guys had it out there or two girls or whoever, had it out, you wouldn't really notice this, especially on a loud night downtown. So, um, and apparently not residents of that apartment complex. The woman told me that there's hardly, you know, a, a lot of those units are actually vacant, which is interesting in of itself when you consider the housing crunch we have. But that was completely anecdotal, and that might be a question for the city, but or whoever owns the apartments there, you know. Uh, and so you're describing this courtyard, and I can picture it in my mind's eye, but for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you're saying, you know, so you've got uh, all these housing units that are sort of backing on to this courtyard. So um, one would think there would be a lot of eyes able to see what was going on there. Well, yeah, and like I said, it's it's just so it's it's almost like cavernous, you know, like it's um, it's a lot of tall buildings all around and you wouldn't really, you know, I mean, certainly at night like that, if something happened out in the open shore, but like I said, there, there's no way, I mean, you'd have to stick your head out through a window of the back of this apartment complex to look down and see if there was something going on. And it's like this kind of retaining wall there, like rocks. Do you remember, maybe some of our listeners remember the dispute over that stairway that was uh, just below Livingstone Street. And the stairway was considered to be a real hazard, you know, and the city had to close it off. And so I went for council, and it's been taking forever. And they have another stairwell there uh, constructed out of wood in the time being, I guess, until they find a permanent replacement. But it's right there. It's right at the bottom of that Livingstone. So as you walk down Livingstone Street and you head downtown, uh, it's like a steep drop. It's like about uh, 30, 40 feet. Uh, down to this little alley. So again, unless you were looking, and it doesn't, it's not particularly well lit, although I was there today, but from what I recall, 
it's you know it, it, there's no spotlights. It's not like the outer battery. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, do we happen to know anything about the victim other than the fact that it's a, a 25 year old man? You know, police are really tight-lipped with on this one, um, and that could speak to how much they, how value, how much they value the little bit of evidence they may have, because you know normally they don't want to, they, they need to be able to tell fact from fiction, right? So the evidence they do have, they're not going to release a whole lot if they're really hard up for good evidence, like something really important. Now, again, these days there's video everywhere of everything, so the trick here would probably be trying to line it up with you know as they go out of one screen and into another but it depends on where they have the video and it just seems like there's not a lot they can tell us because there's not a lot they know and on a saturday night uh, sunday morning if that's got a lot of foot traffic that's going to be a little challenging yeah right i mean how do you narrow it down i guess if people did go on up the road or if they delayed somewhere or the other thing is too you know there was uh, i'll mention this the key thing here is the police uh, came upon this victim uh, just by accident, by chance. They didn't get a call. They happened to be in the area. And the details now, whether or not they were led to a moaning or, or, or any screaming or whatever, we haven't been told. But I was told today that they came upon this totally by accident. They just happened to be on patrol in the area. Now, this apartment complex is also right next door to the city parking garage, which has had a couple of fires of late uh, that have been both deemed suspicious. So that would explain maybe why they happen to be in the area, but not necessarily linked to this incident. But, you know, that's why they just happen to be there. And it's really, you know, you talk about the trauma and PTSD that first responders go through. In this case, um, they found the person. He was responsive at that time. Uh, I'm told, and they managed. So obviously, they would have been in some kind of communication with them, whether speaking or they would have acknowledged each other, and they were performing CPR and trying to save him. And you know, this again is only about a minute away from RNC headquarters, the fire station, and St. Clair's. But by the time they got him to St. Clair's, he had expired, so he had died. And so, that's do you talk about the trauma of the first responders? Because they, they, you know, they got to go through that, right? They tried to tell him he'd be okay and get there okay, and that uh, they couldn't save him. So. And I assume uh, that police are uh, not releasing any information on the cause of death? No, there's nothing to that yet either. And, uh, you know, we don't, I don't think, you know how this process goes. They would normally come out and say, well, the chief medical examiner has determined. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. And they did, like in the Harbor Grace one, they'd come out and say the, the Harbor Grace uh, homicide that they're now investigating the RCMP, not the RNC. But um, they came out, of course, a few days later and said, okay, it's been confirmed a homicide. Now, I haven't seen the release today, Linda, um, but they have confirmed it's a homicide, but they they haven't said the type. And I guess that would be, again, going back to the little evidence they have, and they want to protect uh, information like that so they can tell what's truth from fiction, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand that, why police aren't more forthcoming when it comes to this kind of information. But there's information that they withhold because it could jeopardize their investigation. If so- somebody tells them one thing and somebody else tells them something else, yeah. uh, they want to know that they have actual firsthand information instead of hearing it through social media or buzzing on streets and all that stuff. Yeah, or even media. You know, even if, the if media. they release something, you know, happen to let it slip that it was a stabbing, we don't know that hasn't been confirmed so if somebody went to them and said yeah i know it was a stabbing well they might be able to start at least take that person credibly only because none of that's been out in the media or in the public domain so right if that was the case 
Yeah, if it was, and hypothetically speaking, of course. Yes, of course. Well, Brian, uh, I appreciate this. Uh, we're going to um, uh, go to a little bit more of your work now in the next uh, short while. You attended that uh, news conference with uh, Greg Pretty uh, responding to the ASP. So we're going to have a little bit more about that a little later on in the show. But I thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure, Linda. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, And that is Brian Callahan uh, reporting for VOCM News. He was down in the area of Sebastian Court today, just sort of getting a feel for uh, what area residents are having to say about, uh, you know, a homicide in that uh, proximity to, um, you know, a fairly densely populated residential area. It's always unnerving uh, when something like that happens in the community and especially so close to homes. It it really upsets your feeling of safety. Um, But uh, RNC are uh, investigating, and I'm sure we'll have more information on that as uh, the investigation unfolds and whether or not any uh, charges are laid in that particular uh, scenario. Well, coming up, tensions continue to rise as the delay in the start of the economically uh, valuable of crab fishery continues. This is News Talk on VO. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. The Association of Seafood Producers says the $2.20 per pound set for snow crab this season stands while time ticks down on the season. This time last year, some 31 million pounds of snow crab had been landed. But as of right now, boats remain tied up and production lines remain idle. Executive Director of the Association of Seafood Producers, Jeff Loader, told reporters at a news conference this morning that over 400 communities are affected. He says the market has already dropped by another dollar per pound since the panel set the 220 a few weeks ago. As of May 1st, 2022, Newfoundland and Labrador had 31 million pounds of snow crab landed. As of today, in 2023, we have zero. The Gulf and the Maritimes have landed 45.9% and 21.5% respectively at a $2.25 price. The longer the fishery is delayed, the greater impact it has on the premium product Newfoundland seafood is known for. As the season progresses, the risk increases of exposure to soft shell crab, briny tasty meat, and eventually new hard shell. We do not want Newfoundland product to be associated with inferior product versus the Maritimes and Gulf. Nor do processors want to curtail purchases due to these issues as the season continues to be delayed. (coughs) We have been informed that there are harvesters who want to begin fishing. However, they have not begun for reasons that should cause Newfoundlanders and Labradorians great concern. Producers will always respect the decision of harvesters to not fish, a right enshrined in legislation based on their individual business situation, which is why when we hear those individual decisions are being, when those individual decisions are being impacted by fear, intimidation and harassment, we feel an obligation to address this issue. These types of behaviors are not acceptable in 2023. They're offside the legislation. We do not tolerate it in schools, in our workplaces, and it should not occur in the fishery. 
There are 22 snow crab processing facilities that each employ between 150 to 650 seasonal employees from over 400 communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. There are also many associated businesses that rely on the fishery. Without this income, it leaves a huge economic, economic gap in our rural communities. The economic impact of the delay in the snow crab fishery is significant. Not only does it affect plant workers, but also graders, equipment, packaging, and delivery companies, as well as local convenience stores, grocers, and restaurants. The fishery is, is a catalyst for economic growth in which our rural communities rely on. It's the foundation of our culture and plays a significant role in tourism and often is what attracts people to our province, a place like no other. It's time to get the fishery started. There are too many livelihoods that depend on it. Thank you very much. I'll take a few questions. Uh, can you be more specific? You talked about the behavior of uh, some fishermen, uh, intimidation, fear. What, what is it you're hearing? Why are you, why are you bringing that up? We, our producers are hearing uh, from harvesters that they would like to go fishing, uh, but they're afraid of what might happen. There's a lot of chatter on social media, uh, uh, and there's no place for that in any workplace under any circumstances in 2023. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to get into I, I'm not going to get into uh, any individuals or anything of that nature. There's thousands of Newfoundlanders right now who can go on social media and see this and have seen it, and it's probably more than thousands. Uh, it, it is a protected right of in, every individual harvester to make their own decision wh whether they fish or not. This is outlined in the uh, f uh, the Fish Collective Bargaining Act, and any behaviour. Uh, uh, from one harvester to another impacting that uh, is inappropriate. So that's Executive Director of the Association of Seafood Producers, Jeff Loder, speaking with reporters this morning. When we come back, FFAW President Greg Pretty uh, will have uh, with his response. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back. Thanks a lot to Noah and Claudette. Well, just before the news break, we heard what ASP Executive Director Jeff Loder had to say regarding crab prices. He says the $2.20 a pound set through final offer selection stands, and he's urging a start to the fishery. Yet, he claims some harvesters are being threatened, and apparently there's quite a bit of vitriolic uh, conversation happening in uh, social media realms. Um, the FFAW president, Greg Pretty, responded to the ASP a short while ago. I'm really disappointed. What he's outlined here is a recipe for, for absolute economic disaster for the province. And here's why. Uh, he says uh, in his uh, press release that he'll guarantee a 220 for three weeks. And that's fine to some people. But what happens after three weeks? And it's most likely after three weeks they'll ask for a reconsideration where the bulk of the industry will be fishing for far less than 220. So that's, that's the problem uh, with, with a three-week. It also, by the way, gives a number of vessels an opportunity to land their entire product. And without the proper 
um, trip limits here, enforced trip limits. This is this could be a, an absolute disaster for the, for this industry. Now, the Earner Earner Priory index price has gone down to it's at four sixty five American. So he said it's dropped about a dollar since uh, since the two twenty uh, here what they paid for uh, to the fish harvesters. I mean, his argument is, the, you know, there's a market out there that it'll only beer what's beers. Yeah, that's his argument. But the issue here is, and we've been very clear and consistent in our messaging, is that 220 is not a deal for, for fish harvesters. They can't fish on that. I've said it many times in the last couple of months. People can't, people would prefer to go bankrupt, tied to the wharf, than fish for these prices. So, and the other thing, uh, Todd, is that the companies have spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks calling harvesters, individual harvesters, and say, you gotta get this thing underway, you gotta do it. Now, never mind about the price, go, go, go fish. We'll guarantee it for a certain period of time. But that's, that's really a tinderbox. Uh, situation for for our industry. There's a better way to do business than that. On the topic of the timber of the timber box, yeah. we're hearing some allegations that there is bullying and harassment underway uh, for those who do want to go fishing and what might happen when they land. Do you want to respond to that? Well, in as much as uh, well, you, you probably know that since uh, since bargaining started, uh, our uh, uh, bargaining committee, our staff, and uh, a number of our insurer uh, council members have been have been threatened. And uh, that's been out there. I think it continues. I'm hearing it continue. So it's a, uh, it's not. It's absolutely ridiculous in this day and age that uh, people uh, outside this union uh, have a, a way of dealing with individuals who, who don't necessarily uh, believe uh, what's going on or, or have faith in uh, in the bargaining committee or the union. But all harvesters are, aren't they all unionized? All harvesters are union, but they don't necessarily be uh, have to be a union member to make a threat. Now let's let's be clear on on the messaging here. We've been threatened as a union. This place you're sitting in was firebombed a couple of years ago. I think you remember that. So when when I get a, a threat, whether it be on staff or council or bargaining committees, I take it very seriously. So you've seen this office closed for, for, for days uh, since the bargaining started. And that stuff continues, uh, even as late as last week. So it, it's an issue, but we have, to, we have to move past that and get to the real issue here, which is getting this fishery going. Now, the, the Telegram had an article <coughs> today, uh, and they quoted Nelson Bussey, who's the vice chair of the 3L Crab Committee. Mm -hmm. And he was questioning the way, you know, the, the, the question you put to harvesters, to 1,000 people, you said, do you think 220 is a viable price? And the union said, you know, that was rejected. But he said, if you, if you had said, are you willing to fish for 220 if that's the market price, 90% of people would, would vote or fish. Yeah, well, I'm not sure of that. I'm not sure. It was a suggestion coming from the Inshore Council that we have that questionnaire, and we did it. So th there it is. And what about the one more question? We're talking about the South Coast, and, uh, 50 license holders with 125 licenses. They said this person said couldn't find anybody who got the, got the uh, survey. That person uh, apparently uh, had something published on uh, Fishery Nation. And uh, that has turned out to be false. And in fact, Fishery Nation has apologized for printing that uh, particular document. So consider the source. You know, when I was out in Board of Grave, there was fish harvesters there who could definitely fish for 220. You know, they're not going to break ranks, they said, but there must be an awful lot of pressure to get out there. I mean, what are you going to do? 
Yeah, there is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure right across the board, Todd, whether you're in a small boat or a, or a large boat. The economics of this fishery are absolutely ridiculous. They're terrible, and it needs money. No question about it but to is, get going. If the price isn't there, is, I mean, you know, at some point do people have to fish? So, at, for some people, they, of course, they will have to fish. Others are content not to fish. But we are working every day on a, on a method to get this fishery up and going and underway. And, yeah, it will take some coin. And what they did today <clears throat> is not conducive to a fishery. To say that we'll have three weeks of a, a guaranteed 220, and after that, it'll be you know, whatever, whatever, they, whatever the market dictates uh, based on those numbers, and we could be fishing for actually less than 190. So, you know, it's going to need an intervention. It's going to need money to get this thing going. There's no question about that. That's FFAW President Greg Pretty responding to the Association of Seafood Producers uh, who held a news conference earlier today saying that 220 a pound sticks um, and uh, he's also responding to questions raised uh, through the media and by ASP about uh, these alleged threats being made uh, to harvesters who um, some of whom have said you know I'm willing to go out um, if you have any thoughts on that you're welcome to give us a call well the crab fishery was raised in the House of Assembly as well this afternoon. It started with a question from opposition House Leader David Brazel, who asked the Premier if he's been talking with his federal counterparts about the looming economic crisis should the crab fishery not occur. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Of course, we've engaged Ottawa with respect to support uh, for uh, plant workers in particular. The member opposite continues to suggest that we have other mechanisms available to us respect to the global marketplace, Mr. Speaker. There's, I asked the member opposite, does he suggest that we subsidize the crab fishery, Mr. Speaker, subsidize the harvesters, subsidize the processors, Mr. Speaker? This is a global marketplace. It's a, an unfortunate price. The Minister of Fisheries has engaged regularly, daily, with both sides to try to get this, this fishery going, Mr. Speaker. That said, we will be there to support the plant workers in particular if they continue to be caught in the crossfire, Mr. Yeah. Speaker. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Mr. Speaker, what I'm suggesting is that you take a leadership role here and be proactive versus reactive, make sure a multi-billion dollar industry is vibrant in Newfoundland and Labrador and meets the needs of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and keeps rural Newfoundland and Labrador and urban Newfoundland and Labrador alive and well. If it's good news from Ottawa, the Premier's front and centre. When it's bad news, he's missing in action. Premier, the fishery is in crisis. Life as we know it, rural Newfoundland and Labrador is on the line. Premier, what are you going to do to help it? The Honourable Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture. Thank you very much, Speaker. And I'd like for the members out to know, everybody in this province know, that we've been very active into the negotiations and the conversations with both ASP and FFAW. As a matter of fact, Friday afternoon, I missed a graduation from Change Islands, which I'm yet to apologize for, because I stayed in to meet with Greg Pretty, and we thought we had a deal to get the fishery open this week. Earlier today, I saw the ASP would have given more details of that. Let's see how the fishermen feel about that, and let's see where it goes from here. But they are working on trying to get this open. We all realize the price of 220 is way lower than what we've been used to the last three or four years, but it's very reflective of what the markets are today, Mr. Speaker. The Honorable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Mr. Uh, Speaker, it's good to be proactive here, but every day loss in this industry is a loss to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and particularly rural Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's debate in the House of Assembly this afternoon on the crab fishery. Coming up, uh, more lively debate regarding completion of the Team Guju extension. This is News Talk on VOCM. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. 
Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, questions surrounding the Team Guju extension resulted in some lively debate in the House of Assembly this afternoon. Federal Infrastructure Minister Dominic LeBlanc, as you recall, joined Premier Andrew Fury for a major highways announcement yesterday that saw money announced for twinning of sections of the Trans-Canada Highway and the creation of passing lanes for those heading towards and disembarking from Marine Atlantic in Portobas. But there was no funding announcement for completion of the Team Guju extension, just a commitment that it will happen. No timelines either. Opposition MHA Loyola O'Driscoll was looking for answers in the legislature this afternoon. During estimates this morning, the Minister confirmed further delays to the Team Gushu Highway. Additional detailed engineering work has not yet been tendered. No construction this year or next. Speaker, what year will work resume on the Team Gushu Highway? The Honourable the Minister of Tor- uh, Transportation and Infrastructure. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And his first probably 10 words was, cor- was false. Oh. I did not say that in estimates. The problem here is, and I listened to the Leader of the Opposition in scrum yesterday, the problem here is this is good news. We're actually going to get it done because we know when he was minister involved in the former PC government, they couldn't get things done. We're getting it done. They can't handle the truth and they can't handle good news. The Honorable the Member of Maryland. We're only wondering what year, Speaker. That's what we're wondering. What year will it be done? They're only at it now eight years. Speaker, this government has been planning and studying for five years. Yes, five years and nothing has been done. Now we spend more years of engineering and analysis. The project has become a punchline. When will the Gushu Highway be completed? In this decade, maybe? The Honourable Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And and again, it's he can't handle good news. I I get it. We understand that the people, the problems, your constituents are appreciating it. I can guarantee you that. But we we promise we will do this. We will deliver. You want to talk about delays? I have it here. I'll table it too. When the the leader of the opposition was Transportation and Infrastructure Minister. Trying to get the, the hospital in Labrador done was delayed for over a year and cost the taxpayers of Newfoundland and Labrador extra $20 million. You don't want to talk about how we get things done? We'll get things done. Didn't he didn't. The, primary done. the Honorable Member for Fairyland. Speaker, maybe you should direct. Maybe you should give his answers to the questions that are asked, not to the former minister. Speaker, in estimates, the minister also confirmed the replacement for the new pension or the prison is way over budget and government may go back to tender. Will he now admit the sole source liberal friendly process has failed? The Honourable the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. <laughs> again, again, as an example, I guess we're going to build buildings and whatever. He just can't handle good news. I get it. We understand it, uh, Mr. Speaker. And, and in terms, he asked a question yesterday. My answer is the same as it was yesterday. We're, we're going through the process and hopefully have decision made on that in the, in the near future. So stay tuned for good news. The Honourable the Member of Fairyland. Maybe you'll take our advice that we had last year and retender it. Maybe. Speaker, if the minister's process is so great, let him award the contract and break ground. Otherwise, will he take our advice and go back to the market in a fair and open process to ensure we get a new prison in a timely fashion and taxpayers' money is well spent? The, the Honourable the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Mr. Speaker, I can only conclude that they're confused over there because you have some members over there that's visiting the... 
Minister of Transportation Infrastructure. I, I, can, under, I can understand being interrupt when it's, when it's good news. I, I, I get that. But uh, we're talking about a very important uh, project that needs to get done, uh, Mr. Speaker, and we're trying to get that done. And I know because there's members over there that visited the facility and said it should have been done yesterday. Some wants to cancel, delay it for another two or three years. We don't know what's going on over there. They don't either because they don't have a permanent leader yet. Uh-huh. So there you go, a little bit of the back and forth between Loyola O'Sullivan and Elvis Lovelace. Uh, uh, Loyola, of course, asking about uh, Team Guju and uh, what kind of timelines are set for that and uh, also about construction of the new penitentiary. Well, immigration, sorry, immigration minister and the MHA for Corner Brook raising the possibility of a constitutional challenge regarding the recent fuel surcharge hike by Marine Atlantic. Here's what Jerry Byrne told VOCM Open Line with Patty Daly this morning. Marine Atlantic says that they are have they have a fuel surcharge. What has been exposed uh, in a very very shadowy way is that Marine Atlantic fuel charge is not does not simply offset the cost of fuel. Murray Hubman, the president CEO of Marine Atlantic, has verified to me in writing that the fuel surcharge is not just to offset the price of fuel. It's also the money collected goes to general operational expenses of the corporation. So it is not a fuel surcharge in its classic sense. That, I think, is very challengeable. The second thing that I think is uh, applicable to a potential court action, to a cause of action, is the Constitution itself. Now, Patty, I'm not going to try to go too far down into the weeds on this one, but, you know, we have three clauses to Term 32, uh, our constitutional protection of our Gulf Ferry Service. Uh, Clause 1 states that we are entitled to a ferry service as traffic offers, uh, and the second two terms, the next two terms, really don't get a whole lot of attention. They talk about the, um, it talks about what can be charged on the ferry service, and the federal government and others think that those two clauses, the last two clauses, section 32, 2, and 3, are inoperable because freight rate, railway freight legislation has been repealed, so therefore they're no longer applicable. I argue differently. What the Constitution says is that all legislation that affects the cost of freight moving in, out of, and within the maritime region shall be applicable to the island of Newfoundland and the Gulf Ferry. PEI has legislation in place. It's called the Straits Crossing uh, Act that limits, that sets a limit on the cost to users of moving passengers and freight between New Brunswick and PEI within the maritime region. We should be able to benefit from that requirement. So I think there's two causes of action here. One, I would allege there's a misrepresentation of what the fuel surcharge is and what it's collected for. The second thing that I would allege is that there has been a a breach of the Constitution in that Term 32.3 has not been properly uh, interpreted there is existing legislation that caps the rates that can be charged on Marine Atlantic, and the federal government has just simply ignored that. Parliament has passed legislation that should be equally applicable to the island of Newfoundland. 
So that's a little bit of what Jerry Byrne had to say on VOCM Open Line this morning. He seems to think there's a constitutional challenge that can be brought uh, before um, this whole question about uh, Marine Atlantic, the fuel surcharges that are being paid, because, of course, it is entrenched in our terms of union. Um, And if you have anything to say on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, a local mental health advocate is moderating a webinar tomorrow during this Mental Health Awareness Week. Well, Glenn Royal joins me now. Glenn, what's this um, webinar all about? Yes, Linda, uh, I am facilitating a, and uh, moderating a panel uh, with the Global Mental Health Care Network dealing on social terms of health from a peer perspective and a mental health lens, uh, discussing uh, numerous topics from uh, income, uh, housing, food, securities, uh, education, uh, immigration, uh, some issues around compensation for people that have lived experience that are doing work for governments, communities, and uh, several other important topics, including uh, family uh, support as well. So this is about the social determinants of uh, health and mental health. Uh, what are some of the the mitigating factors there? Uh, I think some of the mitigating factors is that uh, people that are struggling with various uh, mental challenges, I say they don't have a quality of life because there, there's a high correlation that people that have mental illness and other mental challenges may be either unemployed or underemployed. So their quality of living is pretty low. And due to the fact that a lot of the social safety nets, if it's disabilities or social assistance, uh, the rates are very low. And even people that are uh, working, you know, working poor, they're still below the cost of living and, and the poverty line in this province, in this country sort of thing. And I think the push the NDP has uh, put with the, the government for the All-Party Committee on uh, a basic, a guaranteed basic level income, I think they need to get that expedited through the House of Assembly as AP, uh, not just in Newfoundland, but across the country. I know PEI has had a discussion with the federal government as well, because if people are struggling uh, to just have their basic means of life, uh, their mental health is going to be also at peril. So uh, people who are uh, dealing with uh, mental health um, need the supports and um, certain systems and conditions need to change to protect people's mental health. So there's two sides to this, I suppose. Most definitely sort of thing at all, because like a lot of people keep saying it all, if people are struggling just to put a floor underneath them, and that's just not a literal floor, but all the basic amenities for life sort of thing, uh, you know, the mental health is going to go, and if their mental health is going, and they don't have the other things, so it kind of a two-pronged approach sort of thing. So, you know, poverty in this country, I think uh, calculated by stats can, they're saying somewhere between 70 and 80 billion. Uh, then you throw out the numbers of uh, productivity loss in the Blood Mill Commission of Canada in the early 67. So you're talking almost $150, $200 billion that are being lost or costing to governments uh, across this country at all. And they're big numbers to both governments and business sector. So this webinar is taking place uh, tomorrow, 2.30 Newfoundland time, 2 o'clock in Labrador. Um, can anybody uh, gain access to this? Absolutely at all. Uh, you can check out the Global Mental Health Care Network's Facebook at all. Uh, it's all on my uh, Facebook and my social media. And if yourself, Linda, and VOCM could promote that uh, through your uh, online and uh, your, your social media accounts, we'd be more than grateful to you and your organization. Glenn Royal, all the best to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Linda. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you again and keeping mental health in the forefront of uh, the topic uh, for the public. All right, thanks. Thank you.
And Glenn Royal, of course, is a uh, local mental health advocate, uh, and he's hosting that webinar tomorrow. Well, thanks for listening, everyone.